Aloha, it's Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and welcome back to the Curvy Geeky Fangirl podcast, the podcast where I recap all of the fun things in my week that are geek. Check that out. I came up with that in the shower, so, you know, your girl's growing. Also, I usually recap TV shows, film, a book if I've read one, anything geek-related usually goes into this podcast. And believe it or not, guys, with the long break I took and have an actual time during the holidays to get some stuff stuff done. Some stuff stuff done, that's a thing. I actually have all kinds of stuff to share with you guys this week. So we're gonna be talking about the finale for Midnight Texas. I'm gonna recap that series as a whole. It was nice and short. They took no breaks during the holiday. So they finished out. I'm also gonna be talking about some a K-drama I watched, a K-drama called Something in the Rain. I usually don't have a lot of time to watch K-dramas because I am invested. So if I'm going to watch a K-drama, they have my full attention. Also because I have to read the subtitles, but also because they're engaging and they just suck you in. So I watched Something in the Rain that I'm going to be talking about. That was on Netflix. I also watched Tidelanders on Netflix and a show called Diablero on Netflix. All of these were really, really good. So I'm going to be going into heavy duty spoilers for all of the stuff that I just talked about. As you guys know, with this podcast, I am not scared of spoilers. I actually actively seek them out. So if you're not one of those and you'd rather watch it for yourself and then come back, please do so. Pause here, catch up, and then come right back. And we will talk about it and giggle and kiki. And it'll be a good time. All of those things. Uh, as always, you can find this podcast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and apparently a bunch of other places because I'm apparently on 11 platforms Don't know how that happened, but it did. Magic, magic of the podcast world. Check that out. Also, you're gonna notice that I've got sponsored ads playing now with my lovely voice attached to it in medium quality. So the reason for that is now they've got a lovely little add-on to Anchor where you can get sponsorships. And hopefully, if I keep at this long enough (laughs) and keep improving and growing, you know, as a brand. That sponsorship stuff will help make all of this fun stuff be a reality. Who wouldn't love to get paid doing stuff that they love to do? It's every YouTuber's dream, I'm just saying. And since I don't wanna be a YouTuber, this is the next best thing. So bear with me on these ads. I promise they're not gonna be insane long and they're never gonna be about anything that don't fully support or have fun with. So disclaimer, ended. All of that being said, I'm going to be rolling right into the Midnight Texas finale and the series recap as a whole right after this. All right, we're gonna jump into Midnight Texas. Um, What a whirlwind, what a whirlwind. Quick recap is that uh, when I left off after talking with you guys about Midnight Texas, we were at the episode where Manfred uh, was confronting Kai about what he may or may not have done uh, with patience. And Kai basically dropping this bombshell that um, uh, he hadn't been doing anything. It was all patience. So there was that. There you go. So patience turned out to be the big bad. Fiji is a bad witch. Midnight Texas has been taken over by patience at this point, And she's about to lay real groundwork for all of her evil plans. Like real, real big, 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 terrible, terrible plans. Um, so the episode after that, I don't, you could have mushed all of that together. But the episode after that was basically like team midnight realizing, holy crap, 
Fiji's not on our side. Patience is now the big bad. We need to figure out how to stop the second coming of Theophilus and save midnight again. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The summation of that episode was that all of their plans went to shit. Uh, everybody got captured, including Manfred. And Manfred loses his head. On to the next episode. Turns out, fake Manfred. Apparently, Manfred and Kai decided to try to get into the painting. So there's a whole painting of a lady with a sword uh, that Manfred has had flashes about, but hasn't had like the ability to really tap into what's happening there. And then eventually he figures out how to. They try to explain it in the way that Manfred has always had an ability to reach into the spiritual realm, the spiritual spectrum, as it were. And he's able to tap into that ability to get into the painting and then talk with the spirit that's invoked in that painting. Turns out, I don't know if it's actually a spirit or see, it gets confusing because they make it sound like she's not a spirit per se. She's somebody trapped in like a dimension type of deal. So she's Delilah, she's the good witch. She's trapped in the dimension. We get a full backstory on how Patience and Theophilus Madness started in the first place. Apparently back in the day, there were three original witches, Delilah, who's a good witch, Theophilus, who turns out to be the father of black magic, and his sister, Patience. Turns out, Patience was real incestuy. She was in love with her brother. And she got real threatened when Delilah made the announcement that she and Theophilus were going to get married and have a baby. Patience was all like, not my man, sister. So she does a bunch of ridiculousness to get Theophilus, including be, like doing a whole, not, not forgery, but glamor. She does a whole glamor to pretend that she's Delilah to make out with her brother. It works. It works. Glamour dissolves. Turns out it's patience. Originally, initially, he is freaked out, but in. He's down. So they start making out hardcore. So apparently at some point, uh, patience manages to snatch her brother back, get it on with him, and then get pregnant. Delilah gets pissed, understandably, because she thought she was going to have this whole situation with Theophilus not happening. So she gets pissed and gets revenge. She chops off the officer's head and she curses Patience by stripping her of her power. More questions abound. So apparently that's what happened and how Delilah gets trapped in the painting is that Patience's son, who was unborn, I guess at the time of the cursing, comes and curses Delilah and traps her in that painting. She tells Manfred, Patience is up to no good. She's going to take over the world as soon as she gets Theophilus back together. And she, he needs to get her out of that painting and stop Patience. Manfred's like, how do we get you out of the painting? And Delilah's like, you have to find the witch who put me in there. Okay. They set up that every, all of this happened like pre-medieval time type of period. Who's going to be alive? Anyway, so it turns out Manfred knows exactly where to go to find out, to find the witch who put Delilah into the painting. And we travel back into the weird witch realm, the purgatory, where we met Fiji's aunt, who I thought should have made a comeback, but didn't. And he, he manages to pull the, it was real quick. And he manages to pull the sun, the, go, the spirit of the sun between Patience and Theophilus, 
Kai works his his magic, takes the essence of this kid, and then we find out Kai not only managed to suck out the essence of this witch, he decides to take it himself to transfer, transform into Manfred. More questions. I will get to that in a second. He transforms into Manfred. We find out he's the one that confronts patients from the previous episode. He's the one who got his head chopped off. Apparently, though, when his head got chopped off, he didn't return back to his natural form. He just stayed looking like Manfred. So Patience was all like, I win and got a brother back. And for all intents and purposes, it's happy days for Patience. She's taken over Midnight, Texas, renamed it Patience, Texas. She's got everybody trapped and is torturing them individually because why not? We had a whole scene where Joe was carrying a cross. There was, I have a lot of questions. We're going to get back to those. Basically, the final episode is every, it's, it's crap. Everything's gone to shit. Everybody is trapped or taken or being tortured somewhere. Except for Manfred. Manfred has managed to keep the secret that he's actually alive and that it was Kai that took over the body. And not only that, he's working with fuckboy Walker. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know how I feel about Walker. Stalker, Texas Ranger. I stole that from a show. But it is appropriate. This kid is a, oh, he's the worst. Anyway, but Walker's there and he's spying on patients and seeing what she's doing and kind of feeding, going back to tell Manfred what's happening. And they're trying to come up with a plan to free their friends and figure out a way to save Midnight. I don't even think he was helpful, to be honest. Anyway, so basically, Joe has turned dark. Patience has managed to turn him into a dark angel because we have the CGI for it. Why not? Fiji's still evil and doing her thing. She has crushed any possibility of her getting her soul back. Literally. Literally crushed it. <laughs> we get introduced to the, the witches under Delilah, introduced to somebody in particular named Addie. She works as like their IT uh, there was a whole part in there where Boba was trying to save Fiji and they had to get in touch with the Delilahs. They get in touch with Addie. Addie helps them for nothing. Fiji stops everything that happens. And then we just get on this crazy roller coaster of like, why not get crazier and crazier? We have nothing to lose. Eventually, this all culminates into Theophilus getting sick. Finally, apparently, the body that he has borrowed realizes that it's not the body that can handle all of his evil essence. Yeah, no. And he's starting to decay. And Patience is trying to figure out why this is, why this is, why is this happening? Manfred was supposed to be the one who could handle all of that. He had that whole demon sickness happening. So she's like, I don't understand what's going on. Then they realize after Manfred, I'm pretty sure Manfred like just appears that the body that they're using isn't the right one. Uh, what else happened in the, in the middle of that last episode? Oh, also all in the last episode, Olivia turns into a vampire, her and Lem still going strong, but working together to get rid of patients. Lem gives his blood to Theophilus to try to help heal him, which now ties him to Theophilus, which they use briefly to showcase that he knows that Theophilus isn't doing well. Um, Walker comes back to face off with Joe. It was the most anticlimactic fight. It was a whole scene where he just stares at Joe and tells him he doesn't want to hurt him, but he needs to come. He needs to stop it basically. And Joe listens. That was it. And then we got, oh, we got the return of Fiji and the return of Basil for some reason. So the chaos demigod from like a few episodes back is back because, you know, midnight's going crazy and he's, he's doing his creepy pizza boy stick. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention, Patience 
her plan is to turn all these good witches into dark witches, which they're doing. They just have to forcibly remove their souls, which are the butterflies. And it's working. So that's happening. Um, so he's in the midst of watching all this go down. Bobo sees him and Basil, Basil, know, Basil knows he can make a deal with him. Basil kind of comes off as a very Rumpelstiltskin-esque type person, especially by the end of this. So he basically says, yeah, I could help you, but not without a price, essentially. Um, I could help find something for you, like a soul for you uh, to help with Fiji, to get Fiji on your side. But it's got to be from somebody you don't know. And I need you to, your consent to do so. It's very demon-esque. Bobo's like, no, no. And then he's like, okay. So then <laughs> they get the soul. They get Fiji back. Fiji has a, a moment of, of self-pity and like, I've been horrible to you. And then they get back on track with the plan, um, which is to take down patients, right? So Fiji and Addie get together and team up to bring Delilah back out of the painting finally. They get Delilah out of the painting. She faces off against Patience and Theophilus and manages to trap, well, I'm pretty sure, yeah, she cuts off Theophilus' head again, or his body just decays and gives up. One of the two happens, but he goes away, and then she faces Patience and traps her into a painting. I don't know why she can't kiss, kill her. They don't explain that either. But sure. So it ends with midnight going back to normal. Olivia is a, oh, there was a whole situation where Olivia and Lem, in the midst of them being tortured and trapped and, and imprisoned, uh, realized that eventually they were going to try to kill Olivia. Eventually. They had to do something that was going to surprise them that they wouldn't expect. And turning Olivia into a vampire was going to be that. The whole two seasons of Midnight Texas up to this point had been about Olivia not wanting to become a vampire, not wanting to give up her mortal life because she feels if you're going to live, it's got to be meaningful. And the only way that's meaningful is if you die. But she's like, fuck it. I need to, we need to save everybody. <laughs> so go, go ahead and turn me. We need as much leverage as possible. He's like, all right. So she's now a regular blood drinking vampire. Um, Joe is still dealing with the guilt of having killed his husband, which he should. Um, but now he's also dealing with the guilt of what he did as a dark angel. There's a whole part in there where he was trying to stop the other Midnighters. And in the process of doing that, he killed an innocent Addie, the, the, the good witch we got introduced to. He kills her, uh, in the midst of his dark, whatever situation. Um, there's also a whole part in there where he says he's leaving midnight and he's going to leave the the basically the charge of protecting midnight to Manfred. Manfred's going to be the new, I guess, un, supposed leader. I don't know how Joe was the leader to begin with, but whatever. He's like, I'm, I'm giving the town to you, basically, Manfred, for you to protect. Well, I'm off doing my journey again. He's trying to atone for all of his stuff. Yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if he's doing that with Walker or what. Who cares? Walker's a fuckboy. Also, we find out that the deal Bobo made is clearly going to have consequences. We find out Fiji's pregnant. And she she makes a comment about how she can't believe somebody they don't know she already loves so much. And then Bobo breaks down and has the tears and he realizes that the twist to ba- you know Basil's plan was that he was going to clearly steal the soul of their unborn child. End of end of Midnight Texas. Those are the two episodes you missed. It, as jumbled up as I just explained it to you, that's exactly how it was presented. Crazy, all over the place, and 
almost felt like it had nothing to do with the previous season. So, or pre- not even the previous, like the past season, not season one, the earlier parts of season two. And mind you, this was only nine episodes. Okay, so after all of that ramble and the recap of the last two episodes and how everything went down, what I really liked about the series, now that it is canceled, NBC is not going to renew it, at least on their side, what worked for me was the cast chemistry. Season one and season two, as crazy as season two got, I still love the cast chemistry. The core Midnighters that we all saw, Joe and Chewie, Lev and Lem and Olivia, Bobo and Fiji, Manfred, and believe it or not, Creek, as much as I was not a Creek fan, she was definitely much better than Patience, both on paper and in the show. Um, but I liked I liked the chemistry between all of those main characters. It really felt like they were strangers who grew into friends who then became this unit. And I really liked that. I liked how everything bounced off of each other. I did like the Creek twist they gave. So if you were reading into uh, why some of the actors were leaving the show, because uh, Rev left, he was a part of the season, first season, not so much the second season. Creek was out, they killed Chewie for some reason. Creek rolled out and it was uh, all over the internet that she basically was moving on to other projects and didn't really have the time she needed to invest into the rest of the series. So the series very much gave her a very sweet farewell, which I thought was happening in that first episode when we came back and she was still dealing with the aftermath of everything went down. It's very rare, especially in shows like Midnight Texas and other Supernaturally shows, we're talking about massive like carnage happening in the town for them to actually show the aftermath of what all that does. Usually like they show the craziness, they show the result, the resolution to that. And then everybody's just fine the next day, like nothing happened. But in Creek's case, after everything that went down in the first season, she just could not get her head around staying in the same town where all that stuff had gone down with her brother and her father and the secrets, which I appreciated. It felt very authentic that she would be like, I cannot be here. I have to move on. And in order for me to do that, I got to move out. I got to go. That made sense. But then they randomly had Creek come back. They tied it into a story around Basil so or Basil, 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 whatever this demigod they tied it into a story around this demigod and now that the whole season has played out I understand they needed to show him there so they could show him again at the end of this season I don't think it was worth a full episode but whatever but also I wasn't sure I thought we already had our goodbye with Creek so when they brought her back like I want to say fourth or fifth episode into the season of this very short season it felt weird that she just showed up again not only did she just show up again she was mad as hell for what felt like no reason. They were trying to jump back on her feelings or unfinished feelings with Manfred, but because we had so much happen in that, granted, small space of time between when she left in the early part of the season and when she came back, it was just like, why are you here? And then when everything went down and they killed off her character, it was like, what is happening like why why did we do all of this to kill her a lot of questions a lot of questions and that goodbye and the grieving like they gave us a whole fake funeral and they have Manfred like losing it kudos to the actor playing Manfred 
He really sold that he'd be distraught. But also, it was rushed as fuck. Again, it was only nine episodes. So I'm sh- I don't know if they were like, now we need this to happen like like tomorrow, like fast. Like, can we get all this in so we can get it all out? Or if they had a longer story and then realized, oh no, we've only got this much episode or these many episodes. So we'll just condense it. Either way, it definitely felt rushed and crazily compacted. So nothing really sat with you as a viewer. They had one more episode in the first season. And I feel like the storytelling and the pacing in that was a way more, I don't want to say consistent, but consistent, consistent and just fully contextualized, fully realized on how they were going to get everything spaced out and put in place to tell this short story questions the showrunners changed for so the showrunner in the first season and the showrunners the co-runners in the second season you can feel the difference and i don't know if that was for the good or for the bad there were a lot of aspects of this second season you know i said i liked the creek twist the thing i liked about the creek twist was that it introduced the mystery of kai not being the big bad i really like the idea of kai starting out like he was the big bad and then it being a switch and it was somebody that you didn't expect i felt like that was good how we got there maybe not the greatest with the return of creek for such a short time but it laid the groundwork for something else so i appreciated that Lem and Olivia's relationship was also a high point for me. I like it when we can include a loving couple who aren't constantly breaking up every two episodes to explore other options and realize they want to be together together. again. We had our couple from the first season. We watched them grow in love, have their, you know, their troubles and their obstacles, get over them, get married. And then we got to see what they look like after that. It's nice to see, like, I mean, you're still going to have obstacles after you're married, but they're not, not to the point of like, I'm going to question everything. I don't know if I love you anymore type of CW drama that usually happens in that scenario. It was more like, we're a unit. We have situations where we definitely need to be a lot more honest, open and honest with each other. And then they were, and then they were. It was a situation where like, we learned from the mistake. So we're just going to continue to talk it out and grow as a couple appreciated that i also liked um insane patience as over the top as the show got towards the end the actress playing patience it clearly looked like she was having so much fun playing this insane diabolical woman for me the payoff that patience was the big bad worked because they set her up to look like this innocent all shucks southern country girl who was just in an unhappy marriage and it turned out she had been playing everybody the whole time i liked it i liked all of it as and especially towards the end it just got super camp and i feel it feels like the actress was like fuck it i have nothing to lose they want me to go overboard done done i'm gonna give her an english accent why not? Like, let's do all the things. Let's do all the things. That English accent was rough. Was rough. But I felt like it fit. 
everything else that was going on. This, as crazy as that show got, because it got crazier. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I felt it was a good payoff. I liked the structure of that storyline. Cool. Did I need two episodes about Theophilus? Nope. Didn't need it. He didn't serve much purpose other than to be the thing that she wanted and then be the thing that she got taken away from her. That's it. Um, what else? Oh, I also really liked the misdirection with Kai. Uh, like I probably already just said, but with Kai being the maybe baddie, I really liked how they took their time to set up and have you doubt it the entire time as to whether or not Kai was the big bat because he comes into town, they're building stuff up, they're taking over the hotel. He seems not trustworthy because he seems to be doing a lot of stuff that he's just not openly sharing with everybody else. But at the same time, he's also healing people. He is literally healing people on a regular basis. So it was confusing. Like, is he or isn't he? Or is he? And then when we had the shady points of him not wanting to give Lim back his powers or uh, not believing that one of his helpers could be a crazy murderer, uh, like stuff like that, or even his disbelief around patience. Like I really liked that they dropped these little hints, like maybe it's not everything you think it is. And here it is. So as crazy and as messy as it got, when it came to misdirecting who was really trying to hurt Midnight, I appreciated that. The whole switcheroo, everything, everything worked in that regard. On to the things that didn't really work for me. Um, all of the the obstacles they used to split up two of the couples on the show. You know how I feel about Joe and Chewie. So I'm going to save them for last. Fiji and Bobo first. I didn't, so they gave Fiji this curse and she apparently they needed the curse to parlay her into taking up the dark arts and then have her be somebody who's helping the ultimate big bad. I don't know that that was required in the way that it went down. You had somebody who was very serious about her magic, who all of the first season was really scared about what it is that she was capable of, because there were all these hints that she was like insanely powerful. Then into the second season, it started slowly with her kind of thinking maybe this was an avenue so that she could save Bobo. I even liked bringing back the ant for her to, for the ant to be like, don't do this. But when she finally made, made the decision to just go dark and try to save Bobo, I feel like they lost the character in that regard. And not just because she turned dark, but because she stopped questioning stuff. She stopped acting like the Fiji we knew from the first season and even the beginning part of this season. She just was like, yeah, no, I'm gonna do it full stop. I'm not gonna question anything. This looks legit. And just like, and I get they were trying to say her fear about losing Bobo was what was gonna override all of her rationale. It just didn't feel like that after everything played out. It just feels like she was like, well, at this point I have to do this so that I can do this. And it's required. So I I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of that transition. Bobo getting red though, still a highlight. Everything else though, <laughs> just felt felt weird. And then it felt like she stayed in the bad mode for too long. Like by the time they saved her and got everything fixed, we were almost towards the end of the last episode. Like it took a really long time to get her to come back. So 
it was weird. I didn't like that part. So we take that out. Um, onto the Walker Chewy situation because what the fuck? Okay, so I understand they wanted to introduce a new character. Um, and it would, on paper, I'm sure it looked very interesting to have this long-term married couple kind of get shaken by this newcomer who's decided that he needs to be a part of this. Cool. How it all went down though, not so cool. We barely got any Chewy. When they introduced Walker, he just immediately zeroed in on Joe. They gave him this weak story about how he had heard of Joe, but they never went more into why Walker was so obsessed with Joe. We just know that Walker uh, firsthand saw demons basically, I guess, mutilate and kill his family or just his mother, but nothing else explained how he got into hunting, who taught him how to hunt, where the fuck he got his tech where did he get his tech? He had a new gadget every goddamn minute. So I wasn't a fan of Walker in general. Also because he's the person, the fuckboy who just wrecked this whole marriage <laughs> because he was just being greedy. Like they never fully shaped that character. They never showed us like what, what he wanted from Joe other than just to be with him. Like it didn't answer a whole lot. And it just kind of felt like he just showed up it was like, we should do things. And then Joe was like, maybe not. And then, oh, okay. And then that was it. Like, it was strange. It was strange. And kind of flat. And definitely kind of tone deaf. So, and I mean, even after all of that goes down and everything breaks down and we get Joe being upset with him, they kind of left it hanging in the finale episode that those two were going to take off. And I guess bond or further develop into a relationship they left that open that and it didn't feel like it should have been so i not a fan not a fan of walker i still don't he seems again like on paper looking at like at stats for him does seem as an seem an interesting character to include he just wasn't fully developed and it came across that way it just didn't make any sense when he would pop up and be like, no, this is why you have to do this for me, Joe. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? So there's that. Um, what else? There were the introducing Basil, Basil, Basil. I don't care about his name. This pizza delivery boy, chaotic character. They devoted a whole episode to him to A, show that he existed. B, show that he had a, a very interest or heavy interest in midnight itself. In the midnight, the whole backstory for the town is that it's sitting on some sort of energy being Sunnyvale Sunnyvale Sunnydale Ooh, people Buffy fans are gonna kill me but Hellmouth basically sitting on a Hellmouth got a lot of spiritual energy in this little place but also being like this is where you know I can shake shit up and cause a bunch of crazy chaos I had a lot of questions because if the plan had been all along for patients to do this thing with her brother wouldn't Basil know this because he can clue in to all secrets and unrest? And why wouldn't he try to push the narrative for patients just to take full over full stop and not give so many hints to the other Midnighters? That didn't make sense. Uh, I also didn't understand unless he was also going to be a ploy for more episodes down the line. We had him show back up at the, in the finale so that Bobo can make that deal. Was 
is he was he supposed to play a bigger part at some point like was he gonna be the ultimate big bad like after patience and everything and they introduced that and then we had uh a hint at the very end manfred's grand comes back and and basically warns him that more troubles come into midnight and they just show a knight dragging a sword walking down the street and now it's canceled so we we're like what the fuck what does this, does this mean anything so i didn't i didn't understand why basil had to be introduced with all everything else that was going on we were good with just the patience kai who's the bad guy situation i don't we did not need to include a demigod who was interested in chaos didn't need it um what else that ending the finale they give midnight was shit it was terrible i did not like it at all i mean it it sloppily resolved everything else that had been going on like how to stop patients their deal with theophilus getting fiji back it's it just like it felt like an overstuffed sandwich of things. Like, yeah, we based it here. We gave some base layers to lead up to this story. And then we just crammed in like a bunch of stuff that you didn't need in a sandwich. Jelly, in addition to ham, cheeses, chips, pickles, chocolate. Like they just they just went like clear the deck and stuffed it. Like I guess a fruitcake. It just went full fruitcake and just cleared the board and put everything in this thing, except it didn't come out well. And it didn't taste good. So there's that. I mean, I understand. I, I don't know how shows are set up. I don't know if they got the heads up like, hey, we're not going past this many episodes. So figure it out. Or if they had to cut out something, like maybe there's a lost episode somewhere that explains a little bit more and it's just gone or what. But it just, it felt terrible. It felt like they had really big ideas and paced these big ideas in the early part of the season and then we're just like shit we're running out of time and just crammed everything else together to try to get it to the finish line and that finish line sucked it was like all kind of battered and bruised and barely holding itself together and in the end we have everybody splitting up not only that but the rumor mill on the internet is that a lot of the core characters even more core characters from midnight weren't planning on coming back a third time to do the series so boo but yeah but uh yeah that's really all i had going yeah just going on with that midnight i still love you i still have the first season and i have this second messy season that first season though was just so good it was so good and then for whatever reason they changed showrunners i don't know if the other showrunner was not available or what but they should bring that. If if this is going to get picked up by a streaming service, I would hope they would go get that first showrunner again and kind of bring it back. I'd appreciate that. These are dreams, though. It's never going to happen. But if it did, I'm going to put that out into the universe. Positive thoughts. Original showrunner. Season 3, Midnight Texas on Amazon Prime or Netflix or Hulu, not Hulu, Amazon Prime or Netflix, please. Either of those where you don't have to worry about commercials sneaking their way in. I take it. I take it if they do it. But yeah, that's pretty much it. That's all I got for finishing up Midnight Texas. And that's pretty much going to finish up the recap for 2018 because everything else is on hiatus for a while until I want to say February-ish time frame. So yeah. 
so that yeah that's the last of the shows that I was recapping for 2018 more about what's going on in 2019 after this Like all things geeky and nerdy, check out ForAllNerds.com, a site that strives to uplift people of color in pop and geek culture. Yours truly is the fashion and lifestyle editor over there with tons of fandom fashion sets for cosplay inspiration and everyday geek wear. Check out ForAllNerds.com today. Okay, so now we're going to be talking about the Netflix series that I've managed to binge on our my nice little uh, big holiday vacation that happened the last couple of weeks here. And I was able to get through the rest of Thailanders, which is a show about half human, half siren people who are trying to basically figure out how they're going to work the lives that they're in. And all of the poor humans that are also roped into this business as well. We also have Diabolero, which turned out to be a fantastic ride of a show that I was not expecting at all, uh, given the the mini trailer I got from it. That show is about, well, complications. It, it's a show about death and like satanic rituals, <laughs> and like, but also like people who go around trying to help humanity. So you've got like a brother-sister team. Uh, they call themselves the Diableros. Or they pra- are they are Diableros? Basically, they help free people from possession of demons. Like they're completely knowledgeable about the demonic world in general. And we have all these like cool kind of tangents that spin off from this core understanding that they know demons are real. And they also know how to police these demons basically. And then we get a, a grander story and that there might be some underhanded stuff happening. Uh, there might be some angel business as well. And other people doing insane things. So super cool, actually. Fantastic. Lovely show from Mexico. So I watched both of those that I binged. And then I also got into anime. I jumped into Black Clover, which is a show I've talked about on and off here on the podcast. But I like really got into the lore and just started focusing and, and watching it. I'm going to give my hems and haws on that as well. And then I'm going to be jumping into the Korean drama as well. Something in the rain that I binge watched as well. These are going to be pretty short and tight. So no worries. So let's talk about those Netflix series first. So in the Netflix series Tidelanders, uh, I had to give it, I have to give it a for effort in the origin that they created for this story. Basically, they set up a world out of Australia where you have people who they call it a hippie commune, but really these are all the offspring of human men and sirens, which apparently are just all women. Uh, Basically, in this story, the lore is that when sirens call men from the sea, and have sex with them and inevitably drown them, they leave the babies on the shoreline. They don't take them back with them to the sea. Unfortunately, these poor babies are now, they feel some type of way because they're half human, half siren. They feel the pull of the siren and they want to be connected to their mothers, but they can't. They never get back in touch with sirens. And they don't really have a, a big connection to men to the human human side at all and the way they set that up was i mean 
you could see you could say that you could see it coming it's not super original but i thought it still worked for the overall story so for this little island or islands that are dealing with all of this madness right now the tidelanders uh a don't age b <laughs> or age super slowly very very slowly and b they are trying to figure out ways to create a sustainable life without being too involved in humanity it's a lot to explain that you don't age that fast and that you might be super strong in some sports and that you have some control over water and that you know sometimes you need to sing a song that lures people into a hypnotic trance and then to their deaths you know it's a lot it's a lot to weigh there so you have this community that is just basically living day to day on a hierarchy kind of a situation. They've got somebody that has named herself the queen and nobody has really tried to test her on that. When we come into the show, she's just declaring it in order to help her community grow and stay sustainable as they are, get food, clothing, and the like. Uh, They've partnered with the humans on the other island, the men in particular. So there's like this fishing boat group that you know, under the umbrella of cover, say that they are fishermen, you know, they go out to sea, they do the fishing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really what they do is drug dealing. They're heavy drug dealers. And basically the Tidelanders or the queen of the Tidelanders helps to run that business. She goes and gets whatever this is. I think they help bring in the narcotics into the country because they can swim underwater, they can breathe underwater. So they help bring in the narcotics and then they give them to the humans for the humans to sell the dealers and then they take their profit like that's how it's been working for decades when we get into the show and then things start start falling apart per usual we also get introduced to our main character who is supposed to who's the special she's the special for the show to be honest she's a character who got locked up apparently for like 10 years in jail for the what is it called she burned somebody's house down with that person in it. So they got her on a murder charge as well as this house burning charge. Uh, but I think it's more manslaughter than it is murder one because she only served 10 years. And when she does her time, they let her go. So, but we catch her at the end of those 10 years. So she's coming back. She got an attitude and she wants to know, she's trying to get some answers and try to figure out what her next step is really going to be. She's got a lot of baggage that she's carrying with her. When we meet her, she's just angry and angsty and crying a lot, a lot. And she gets the most screen time because she's the main character. She is who introduces us to the rest of the Thailanders and their origin stories. She's also the one that introduces all of the change that's about to happen between the humans and the Thailanders. A lot of stuff just goes down. In essence, she kind of shows up, drug deals start going super bad for everybody around. The queen of the Thailanders starts like panic decision-making, which is never good. She's trying to simultaneously secure herself as the queen for the Thailanders and get all this money, but also buy these like artifacts so that she can get more history on the sirens because her ultimate goal is to bring the sirens back to land. We find out that there is quite the history between the humans and the Thailanders or the sirens for hundreds of years, apparently. Hundreds of years this has been going on. And apparently back in the day, the sirens used to live 
well, I don't say live on land, but they frequented the land a lot more than they do now because now they don't touch the land. They drop these babies off, they get out. So she's trying to bring the sirens back and so that they can live a more complete life. She, we also find out that this queen is one of the survivors from a massacre that happened hundreds of years ago in which the humans knew about this whole Thailander situation and decided all these Thailanders gots to go. We can't have them here. We killing them. We killing sirens. Like apparently it just went down. It was a huge deal. This artifact that she's interested in tells the history of how basically the humans figured out how to get the sirens off of their land. Some sort of horn which can call the water and I guess balance out whoever like whoever is controlling the horn it helps balance out what their ultimate wishes their ultimate desire so if you're facing off if you're a human facing off against sirens this water is going to wash away those sirens and now you've got your land back but if you're a tidelander and you want the sirens to come back and the humans to go away bada bing bada boom switch so she's trying to get all that done and be the one who brings back the sirens but things are kind of complicated for her she keeps like like i said panic decision making she's not making good deals she is constantly losing the trust of her people it's not good it's not good all the way around for her and the new girl that we met who introduced us to the show she is a huge contender for her so this girl i don't know if she's got they introduced a lot of supernatural elements. We got a, we got a seer in here who's like apparently a Thailander who's been away from water for a very long time. So she ages a lot faster. Um, but the only way she can see the future is by cutting up her own blood to put in water. I don't, they never really explained if like the dish they used was required, but definitely they had to cut their hands and then put it in water to see like future potentials that could happen to you. And they explained that it's not a precise science with this magic that they're using that it's more of like a this could happen type of situation and that's how it plays out as well the show was actually pretty decent for the short amount of episodes i think there's only eight episodes for tidelanders it's pretty short it's pretty short run series the lore was succinct i appreciated the lore that was really cool um what else and uh, yeah, that's pretty That's pretty much it. I appreciated it for the lore. I appreciated it for that ending. We get a season, the series, season? Season finale, where it seems like everything's finally coming to its point. The queen feels like she's finally gonna get what she wants. She doesn't. The, <laughs> the main girl finally kind of like, owes, sort of, owns up to everything she's been fighting for the last few episodes and gets her to her point. And a lot of truths get unveiled, all of that, all of that nonsense and whatnot. Some of it you can see coming from a mile away, but some of it's really, really cool. And as a fantasy escape, I didn't mind it. It was pretty good. The problems with it, the pacing of the show is slow. For only eight episodes, that pacing is slow. It does feel like we're kind of reiterating a lot of points as the show's going on, like they go back and talk about something and then they go back and talk about something else and then they go back and talk about something else. And it's like, we we don't need to keep retreading this. We got it. Like this is what's, <laughs> this is what's happening. This is what's gonna go moving forward. Um, the relationships in the story, I have a thousand questions. They kind of start and then don't end anything when, when it comes to the relationships. Which you could say can happen in life, but it happens like a lot, a lot in the show where like 
she'll jump from one person and it's not like a knock on like her her virginity or her her sanctity of understanding a romantic relationship it's more like they introduce us to this guy she's now with this guy just kidding she's with this other guy we never see the first guy ever again kind of situations or when we do see him it's at the end and it's so we can kill him sure 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 i don't what what's going on um what else oh the lead the lead was somebody i just couldn't get behind she she you're supposed to see her well what i took from the interpretation was that you were supposed to see her as basically the victim she's a victim of happenstance uh how she was even brought into the world is crazy like so she's a thailander baby that showed up on shore um usually when the thailander babies show up on shore they're on the human side and then the humans take the babies to the Tidelanders on their little own commune section. But in her case, um, this man who was running the boat that found her decided that he was going to keep her and raise her as his own. Okay, cool. Whatever. So she grows up not even knowing she's a Tidelander. She thinks she's a regular old human. And for all intents and purposes, she's fine. She just grows up as a regular human. Nothing weird, nothing crazy. Uh, but there's a lot of also there's a lot of other stuff going down. Like her dad is a drug smuggler and he dies a terrible death. And then her brother takes over the business and he's also in for insanity. She's got a foster mom, adopt a, adoptive mom. This woman who was married to her father, uh, <laughs> who hates her guts and is actively trying to kill her. She was actually my favorite. I loved her consistency. And the fact that uh, you couldn't hold her down ever, ever. She always had something else up her sleeve. And she also gave us a lot of lore too. So you have the human women also in the show, uh, a small group of them who are, who also know about the Tidelanders, but aren't having that shit, aren't having it. And apparently part of the reason that sirens do not come on land for this area is also because of these women. Like they managed to get a hold of and murder a siren full on. Like, like this poor, the siren just like gets onto the beach and these women show up out of nowhere with netting and harpoons and just go to town. We're supposed to understand like they're another piece of the messy, messy pie that is Tidelanders in that not only do you have these half siren, half human spawnings trying to control everything and then the men who feel like they also need to take the, that control back. You've got the wives, the spouses of these men who have, to be fair, been neglected throughout the entire process of all of this between the sirens and the Tidelanders and the, and the human men who are just kind of left to pick up the pieces when everything just goes to shit. And that's that little tiny group of like, we're no longer doing this business, except they are messy as hell, just like everybody else, which I appreciated because this mom character, who I ended up liking a lot more than the main character, even though you're not supposed to like the mom character, I I felt like she was more developed or maybe they didn't have a lot of time to drag out her story. So they were very succinct and like, listen, she <laughs> hates Tidelanders. She's after this girl because this girl is simultaneously the symbol of what broke up her marriage, but also what she lost. And she's trying to get her islands back. And she found a way to do that. She makes a deal with this big drug dealer. Is it a deal that's gonna bite her in the ass? Absolutely. But she makes it because she feels it's the best option because she doesn't wanna keep doing what they've been doing and losing what they've been losing. So 
I appreciated her, but this the lead that we got, she just really came across as CW for me. She was just this crying, whining, woe is me character. Granted, they show a lot to show that she's been through the ringer. She's been through a lot of shit, but not enough to make me care that she's still crying and whining about things. She makes these like off the cuff decisions because she doesn't know how to organize her feelings. And to be fair, she doesn't really have a lot of people to talk to about all of the madness that she's just discovered is happening to her. But instead of like trying to be resourceful and logical, <laughs> which sounds very Capricorn of me, but it, it, it feels like she keeps waiting for stuff to happen. And then when that stuff happens, she gets upset because how dare this stuff happen? And then tears and cries and cries and tears. The show ends. The season ends on a pretty good note. All that messiness that led up to the finale instantly gets cleared. They just start killing off characters. All those relationships that we're talking about, most of those men that she was involved with are dead by the time the season is done. <laughs> They're totally murdered. And we get to see the sirens come back. So she, we they've paired her up to be straight competition with the queen of the Thailanders. Like it's gonna be her or this queen of the Thailanders. The whole season we're thinking the queen of the Thailanders is gonna die. She almost does. Technically, she gets mortally wounded, but she manages to talk one of her loyal servants into saving her so that she can then murder that loyal servant. Because of course, because yes. So she survives, but she doesn't bring the sirens back. And she's like, this is proof that all of that, you know, all those sights that we got before, bullshit. I'm gonna run this thing to the ground. But as she's leaving, What's her face? The, the lead that we've been introduced to, whose name I refuse to remember because it doesn't matter. She is the one to bring the sirens back to the beach. Like you see them show up in the shore and they get to the, the, the shoreline and they're all rising out of the water. The story is fun. The characters are beautiful. Everybody's ridiculously gorgeous in the show. If you like sex and you, and you like a you like a little bit of story, it's a great show. It's, it very much reminds me of True Blood, but with sirens, which is very confusing because they look like mermaids. They don't have tails. They're all, they're just legs, but yeah. And that's another thing. As, as a mythology geek myself, I know that sirens mythology revolves around the geek interpretation, which is where they have the heads of women, but the bodies of birds and mermaids are the ones that live in the water and usually have a tail. And there's, I mean, there's tons of creatures like that. And it's very interesting that now sirens and mermaids are kind of becoming one and the same when they're not. So all of that, minor thing though, that's a minor thing. Otherwise, Tidelanders, if you're interested in a good fantasy storytelling, that's kind of raunchy and a little rooted in reality, go for it. It's fun. It's fun. It's eight episodes. It doesn't hurt. Check it out. I'm going to be talking about Diablero after this. All right. So I'm jumping into the Diablero Netflix original series. Now, this is a show that's out of Mexico. So it's original language and everything came out of Mexico and it's a freaking gorgeous looking series to be honest it deals with some of my favorite stuff demons no comes just but like the dark the darker stuff like uh dealing with people who are possessed and how to save them from being possessed there's a girl character in this thing who openly has a relationship with her own demon her history and everything i'll, I'll get into but it revolves around her basically like taking 
power from this, which is an interesting twist on the story. Because usually when we're talking about like demon hunting, as they are in this show, it's usually like, don't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ever watch an episode of Supernatural, they definitely dabble in the gray like Supernatural does. And like, what can you do? What can't you do? How much of yourself can you keep? What do you do with this type of thing? It's really, really good. So Diableros, if you guys get the chance to watch it, watch it. You can watch it in its native language and read the subtitles. Or you can actually do the auto swap, do the dub and listen to them in English. Either way, good ride. Um, basically, our role around Diableros is that you have this brother-sister duo who are demon hunters, basically. They learn the arts from their father. And um, it's a, an art form, apparently, that only men can do. Thus, the Diablero. Because in, in Spanish-speaking languages, you have a feminine and a male stat status on words. Because, yes. So, instead of a Diablera, it's a Diablero. Boom. Only men. Um, as the story progresses, we see what a mess everybody is, which is always a fun ride <laughs> for me. Like they're hunters, but they're like barely getting by because their whole gig is fixing demonic possessions, like being there to help free people or to capture demons to sell on the black market. Insanity. What I really cracked up about was that one of their core side characters that helps them in their endeavor of like selling these demonic souls that they're still, they're capturing. There you go. That's the word. Is a Korean man and his, okay, either his daughter or his cousin or his niece, some sort of family, but they are Korean. It, I just, it's, I watch a lot of telenovelas and it's very rare when you get to see the multi, multicultural aspect of a region. Because a lot of the TV shows, especially if you're watching it from that country, they tend to just depict uh, what they've idealized as the perfect representation for that area. So you've got a show, on top of that, you've got a show that not only has darker skinned Mexicans that are actually in the show and stars on it, but they also include this very rich, very multicultural world that they're living in, which is... I'm. I'm sure it's very representative of Mexico right now. It's a nice, fresh, nice breath, fresh breath of air. It really is. Because usually when I watch a telenovela, they all are very white presenting, blonde hair, blue eyes situations, like as white as you can get. That's a norm, unfortunately, for most of the world. Darker skin is usually bad. Lighter skin is usually good. But in Diableros, granted, it's a show about demons. <laughs> it feel I feel like they kind of reach out of the box a little bit more, which is both sad and exciting to say at the same time. So we have our leads, uh, brother sister duo. Like I said, uh, we have they have a another person, another partner in their group, which is this young girl who is their muscle. And the whole point of her story is that she was one of the first people um, that they try, help try to save on their own. She, uh, she was possessed and the family hired them to help her with that possession and they managed to do so except that it then happened again and then we real uh, she found out or she realized that she had like a tie to her demon so we get her whole her whole backstory which is very twisted she has a very abusive father that was coming after her and in her desperation she willingly lent herself over to a demon in order to protect herself. And they kind of created this relationship of protection and, and strength within each other. 
Unfortunately, as mu- as most things happen when you're in way over your fucking head, she didn't know how to then come back from that. So you got you're just walking around with this demon energy <laughs> and power and just like wrecking shop. And she's like, no, 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 I need to, I need to scale this back. I need to wheel this back. But the brother-sister duo help her figure that out as well. So now she can call this demon on command and then come back to herself as well. It does take a lot of uh, energy from her. It does, definitely makes her a lot weaker after she does everything. But watching the transition, freaking amazing how they did that and how she tries to juggle and balance all of that. Like because of the fact that she has to deal with this demon, there's not a lot of shit in her life because in order for her to keep her head clear and to be able to stay sane throughout this entire process, she can't hold on to a lot of bullshit, which is hysterical. And I love it so much. We also had a priest. We have this priest that kind of brings us into the story. He's basically our lead in into this world. He gets pulled into the story because he, A, he finds out he's got a daughter. He did not know he had a kid. Finds out he has a daughter and then finds out his daughter was kidnapped and then finds out that there might be demons at play with this because there's they're starting to find out there's a pattern. Other kids are being kidnapped as well. They all have something in common. They all happen to be children of priests and a, and a woman. And this demon's just like rounding them up and they don't know where these kids are going or what the point of all this is. And the story, the show basically breaks it down over the episodes. Again, this is not super long. I want to say there's like maybe 10 or 11 episodes, maybe 12. Not super long or crazy. That dive into this world and explain what's going on. We even get more backstory between the brother and sister. We, we talk about, they talk about how technically, even though the brother is the one who's supposed to take up the new title of Diablero and take over the business from their father, the sister's actually the stronger Diablera. She's the stronger one, but there is a rule that women can't be Diableras in this story. And I feel like it's very representative of like a lot of things women can't do uh, in Latin culture. But anyway, that's my take, I don't know. But, uh, but you also have, you also get to see like the other side of that. Like they come across women Diableras. They're all dark, (laughs) they're all all dark and they're all crazy. And you're like, okay, well, this is not the greatest conversation, but all right, okay. But you also, to to the show's credit, and this might be a reach, but this is how I interpreted it. I feel like when they showed the female Diableras working their full magic, it was coming from a place of heart a place of hardness. And that's why they also were super dark and super crazy and super insane. Not so much a place of where the sister could potentially be coming from, a place of love, a place of protection, a place of safety. So a minor view, but if you look at the show, let me know what you think about that. But yeah, so they go into that, they kind of dive into that talk as well. Um, What else? The, the highest for me with this show was that I definitely loved uh, the lore around it. We're talking demons, we're talking angels. That's basically the premise of Supernatural, but with like a lot more action. So good. And more cussing. There you go. So, but I also liked this other offset of like what it really means to be a human, like understanding that there's a balance to all of this. You can't have one without the other. In the show, they make it known that like there's no more angels. There's no more angels in the world. And that's why they're dealing with so many demons as is. Like that's their take on it because no one has seen an angel in ages. We even have the main, one of the main characters, 
uh, the brother, who's a Diablero, who tried to do a full spell to bring an angel to him, um, only for it to you know backfire completely and destroy a lot of things. So there's that. But it leads to its own little mystery by the end of the series. So after everything is said and done with the series, they end up having to fight their big bad. They get make some losses, but they get some gains. I'm get a little bit more insight into the the overarching story that's happening in this season. So we had to deal with the kidnapping of all these little kids and the problems with priests just knocking up women whenever they feel like it and a whole cover-up situation happening as well and potentially an, an even more underground situation with the priests in that they have a full understanding of what's happening in the world around them and they're trying to police it in their own way. It's real creepy and amazing and I like it. The One of the tangents in the story is that when the brother called an angel forth, what ended up happening was that his his sister got pregnant. Miraculously. We're talking like Mary situation. Uh, and it ended up wrecking a lot of things in the process. When she got pregnant, her boyfriend at the time, of course, was like, whose baby is this? <laughs> it was just like, and it ended up breaking up that relationship. Uh, and then when she had her, her baby, when she had her son, that baby gets kidnapped. And they're like, what the hell is happening? And the baby is lost. And then they presume the baby is dead because what is going on? But then we find out later as the show slowly but surely continues to progress, that storyline with the baby is going to be the overarching story for the whole series of like, where did this child go? Why was the child taken? And how important is this child to everything else that's happening? We get a little snippet end scene at the very very end the finale was phenomenal at the very end of the show the last episode was amazing and and you know after they get their win and they're appreciating everything that's going on we get this shot of this little boy with the same birthmark as the baby that we got introduced to a couple of episodes previously and this boy kind of is just walking around a very white and pristine looking town <clears throat> and brings back to life a dead animal. Just cause you know, it's Tuesday. Which just leads to a lot of, oh, wait a second. So like, is this supposed to be the human incarnation of an angel? What does this mean? But they end it. I'm hoping we get a season two. I'm hoping they're gonna explore this world a lot more. But it was a hell of a roller coaster. The show was so good. I loved it. I mean, there's, it's not a perfect show. There's definitely some stuff in there where you're like, okay, what? We, okay. We needed this, what's happening? But it was really good and they did not hold back. Like I said, kids were involved. So they have this whole kidnapping of children. There's a whole scene, like we find out what the plan is with these kids and they go through with the plan on these kids and just like, it's it's insane. It's insane and amazing and so good. So definitely check out Diableros as well. And then I'm gonna be jumping into my K-drama and anime after this. Aloha, beautiful listeners. It's Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I wanted to take this moment to thank you for all of those listening ears that check out my ramblings on this podcast. Please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts as they really help this little podcast grow and grow. Also, don't hesitate to reach across those social media lines to talk about all things geek with me. Check out Curvy Geeky Fangirl on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget that if you listen to this podcast on Anchor, you can leave an audio message that might get played on the podcast. Just saying. Now, back to my ramblings. 
All right, so I'm gonna pair my reviews of Black Clover and my the K drama I watched, Something in the Rain, together, because uh, it's gonna be pretty short and sweet. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but when I watch anime, I typically watch a shonen genre of anime <laughs> because I am an 11 year old boy. So deal with it. One Piece, as I've said previously in other podcasts, was the anime that got me into watching anime, and One Piece. As wonderful and as wide as that world is, because it's amazing, uh, it's also a pretty recipe in that you're like, hey, here are these crazy kooky pirates. Hey, here's the big bad they got to deal with. And hey, this is how they get it resolved. And to be fair, you could say that's how it works for like all stories in general. But it's, it's a shonen genre of anime, meaning that it's for a younger audience and it's supposed to be simplistic. It's not supposed to be like overly complicated or layered even. Sometimes the episodes are and it surprises you and you're like, oh, this is this is really good. And then sometimes it's just like, what? The one thing One Piece is really known for is its longevity because it's been going on forever. It's been going on for decades, decades, still kicking, still going. So but it's fun, it's so much fun. So because of that, I like to blame One Piece, but I typically tend to like anime like that. Lighthearted, filled with action, and doesn't take itself too seriously, uh, which is why I don't watch a lot of the more deeper anime that's out there. I would love to get into our romance anime, but I feel like I would just be crying for days because I tried once and that's what happened. That's what happened. So. I mean, I can watch a Kamasami Kiss because it's, it, again, it's for a younger audience, but I also feel like it gets pretty repetitive to me, in my opinion, watching like Kamasami Kiss and there's another one uh, about like, a, it's like a, the demon's caretaker or something where this girl is basically helping to run a house and she runs the kitchen of somebody who's a demon and she was promised to this person as payment by her grandfather but it's supposed to slowly work its way into a romance. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problematic qualities when you're looking at stuff like that. Even with um, Kamasami Kiss. I think it's Kamasami Kamasami Kiss. Oh gosh. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Even in that one, which is a situation where she's like the uh, re, not regenerated. Is that the word? Renewed? Basically, she's the new newest version of a, of a god to take over this little temple. It's a situation where she's somebody that has to take, she's a caretaker. She's a caretaker and then falls in love with the person who is forcing her to be the caretaker. It's problematic, but you know, I just, it's got some, it's got some fun moments, but for me, I'm like, I need something that's going to be silly and maybe a little raunchy <laughs> and ridiculous and action, 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 fighting, fighting. So Shonen genre is working for me. And that brings me to Black Clover. All of this to tell you that I watched Black Clover. Black Clover, depending on who you talk to, they either really, really like it or they really, really loathe it. And I can't blame them. I can't blame them. Whether you watch it subbed or dubbed, the voice acting for this show, all over the place and on purpose, purposefully all over the place. They go from talking to screaming in seconds to show the energy, to show the intensity of whatever this person's talking about. I can see how that's going to wear a grown ass adult down when you're watching it. Like why, why is all this required? But I highly enjoy it and I really liked it. 
shonen anime is not perfect. Female depictions in anime tend to be real naked, real naked, and crazy booby. Like, just huge. Like, there's no way your waist can support this type of boobs. Uh, Nami, I'm speaking to you. Anyway, in Black Clover, we also get that. There is a girl witch. I want to say her name is Veronica or Victoria. As you can see, I'm clearly invested in the show. There's there's one of one of the few female characters in the show uh, who's a witch. Has uh, she has very cool power. Her ability is that she can control. Uh, they say the fabric, basically, like the, the the fabric strings of the world. I don't know of of the of everything, and that kind of helps her to manipulate and move things. It ties into another power that she gets later. The depiction of her is not ideal, but, and in my interpretation of it, I don't mind it. She it, she just likes being naked. She just likes being in a bra and panty set normally. And then when she has to like cover, cause they're going into town, it's a bear, it's a barely cover. It's like a swimsuit cover type of situation. And she adds stockings with garters which are visible and a hat because she's a lady. So it's de- it's definitely, she's definitely created for a male gaze for sure. But what I do appreciate about her character is that she's not this like oopsie daisy. I can't believe this is happening. And in the show, they point out that she's like half naked all the time, but she's very body positive. She's very body positive about herself, which I appreciate. I don't know if that's on purpose, but that's what's, <laughs> that's how it's coming across, which is nice. The show, like I said, is not heavy, so you can binge a lot of episodes really quickly. Uh, it moves at the usual, uh, sometimes glacial and snail pace of an anime, and that you'll have the group, you know, somewhere for their particular mission, and we are spending a good six to eight episodes doing barely anything uh, as they try to drag it on for the next season or so. So it does have that attached to it, but I still enjoyed the story overall. I'm very interested in the lore. The whole lore around Black Clover uh, is that you've got these two specials that have kind of come into fruition. You've got Yuna and, of course I don't remember the other boy's name because that would make sense right now. Of course I don't. Now I have to go look it up. But anyway, you have these two characters who grew up together. One has no magic, but he has all of the gumption in the world. Like he's like, yeah, I may not have it, but guess what else I can do? I can fight, I can, I can hold a sword, I can do everything else and that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna train to the best of my own ability so that I can be the best that I can be. And he very optimistically believes that his power is gonna come to him. Like he may not have magic right now. He may not be able to do all the things that everybody else can do. But it's going to happen in, in one way or another. It's gonna, it's going to eventually get there, which is adorable. And I appreciate it so much. And it ends up being true for him. So let me, am I gonna get a name? Just give me plots and this business, nothing else. Anyway, so, so you have those two and then Asta, ha, figured it out. So you have Yuna and Asta. Asta is the one who has no powers, no powers whatsoever, but a strong drive. A very, very strong, almost impenetrable drive to go and be the wizard king. He wants to be the best. And then you've got Yuna, who does have magic, and he's one of the strongest out there, but he doesn't have as much stri- as drive and gumption as 
as uh, I just said it, Asuka does, <laughs> as Asuka does. So he's a little slower to coming to the idea that he, or Asta, Asuka, he's a little slower to coming to the idea that he could possibly be the best. But after being around Asta for so long, he's like, you're right. Yes, we are rivals. We are both going for the top spot. And that's also what helps to bring the best out of both of them. This rivalry they've got about being the best. I love the trials we had. Like the whole world is set up where everybody is a magic user. And in this world, either you grow up and become a magic knight. Like that's the penultimate. Get, you know, discover your magic, learn to wield it, wield it in a powerful way, become a magic knight. Best of the best in the jobs. If you don't make it as a magic knight, then you're just like a regular farmer for some reason. Like it's magic knight or nothing. Like that's it, <laughs> that's it in this world. So Austin and Yuna both try out to be magic knights. They both get in as magic knights. Of course, we've got to build a suspense. We don't know if Asa's actually going to make it as a magic knight. We don't even know if Asa's going to get magic. There's a whole ceremony where you get your book, basically. Like, you go in, and it's a combination of the age you're at, and I guess, like, what your level is at that point. And then you wait for your book to call to you, basically. So everybody who has magic eventually gets a book that's called to them. And then they learn from that book and spells get written in that book for them. And they have to have that book in order to maintain their ability. They lose their book, they lose their powers, which is an interesting twist. And then you have Asta, who's never had any magic. He goes to the ceremony, gets a little embarrassed because he doesn't get his book, but he's also never had magic. But he also doesn't let it slow slow him down. (laughs) There's a whole scene at the end where like the villain comes in. And Asta's just ready to fight him. And he's like, you have no powers. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And of course, it's you know, to showcase that he's the special. He's pitted down. It looks like it's the end. And then out of nowhere, a magic book comes out for him. Um, everything's based around clovers for them. You got a clover kingdom. You got clovers on your magic books. Most people have three clovers on their book. Uh, Yuna got a four clover book, which was all like, what? Like the last person to have a four clover book was the wizard king. But Asta gets a five clover book. And then you're like, what? So at first people don't know what to do with it because it's anti-magic. Like that, the, the whole source of that book is about basically taking magic away from somebody and repurposing it. And it's built into swords, which, has, which Asta has been trained to use forever. And that kind of just takes it off. So Asta got his wish. He has a type of magic. It's an anti-magic that he uses. And he gets in with the magic knights. He ends up joining, I don't want to say they're the bull squad. The bulls? Pretty sure the bulls. Bull squad. And then Yuna also gets magic. And he joins up with the fanciest of the fanciest of the night squads. I don't remember what their names are. Neither is it important because we don't see them that often. But he also joins up with one. And then it's all about their rivalry and fighting the big bads and uncovering more information. They introduced us to a world where there are also fairies because magic exists. But not only are there fairies, these fairies have been done wrong. They've been maliciously massacred and murdered and now they want revenge. There's like maybe a handful of them left. Is it fairies or elves? Might be elves. They're a mystical creature. And mostly dead. Most of them are dead. But you have somebody who's like, that's it. I'm getting my revenge. He's a, one of the few survivors who's managed to stay intact or his bod, the body he stole managed to stay intact. There's a whole lore there where like they can keep hold of the spirit, the essence of an elf 
And as long as they can put that into a host body of some sort, that elf can keep living, basically. Which I was just like, huh, strange. Okay, that's weird. But we'll take it. We'll take it. So we get introduced to this kingdom, this old kingdom that's trying to get power back, this elf-based kingdom. Uh, And we get a lot of backstory. They really got screwed over. There's a whole point where, like, apparently at one time or another, humans and elves lived in the same world together. Maybe not peacefully, but definitely together. And then, like, to, I guess, broker peace, uh, what looks to be the Wizard King was trying to get them to understand that they're that we're all not that different, and a marriage occurs, right? It's between the ki- a king elf or a prince elf, or a fairy and a human woman, and that this seems to go off without a hitch. Human woman gets pregnant. Okay, cool. Murder time. Murder massacre. Sky opens up. These light beams start falling out of the sky, and they are targeting these elf fairies. I think they're elves. Maybe fairies. Anyway, murders all of them. Or nearly all of them. So they are they are down in numbers, and they have been trying to regroup and get power again, and slowly get their revenge on the massacre of their people from hundreds of years ago. We also have a diamond kingdom that's out there that just wants to kill this clover kingdom for some reason. They don't really explain why the clover kingdom is so important, or how widespread the clover kingdom is actually known, or why they need to get them out of power in order to take over the world like that is the clover i guess the clover kingdom is ruling the world it's not super explained but it also doesn't need to be because it's, it's just another reason to fight so let's get let's get these <laughs> let's get villains and let's start fighting i also love that our lead character which is usually asta he's he's like luffy in the way that he appreciates a good fight and that's what he looks for when he's trying to best somebody he's not really trying to murder folks he's just trying to be the best out there and then like learn from the person he was fighting from like that's his whole gig he he's making friends with enemies all the time and trying his best not to like destroy somebody but to understand where they're coming from and maybe help them later which is super cute and also for little kids but i appreciate it nonetheless but that's black clover and i enjoy it i enjoy it i think it's running into I don't know if it's on a season basis or if these episodes are just falling out of the sky or what, but we got a lot of episodes in a short amount of time and I'm going to keep watching them. It's like I said, it's not super deep. The lore is pretty cool. I'm excited to see what else they're going to do with the show. So definitely would recommend it if you like that sort of thing, but be prepared for a lot of screaming. It's a, it's a shouty show. It's a shouty, shouty show. I also watched a K-drama called Something in the Rain. Like I said, K-dramas, Asian dramas in general, usually require me to be very invested <laughs> in them. I don't want to say require, but that's usually what ends up happening. Like I don't, it's, K- Asian dramas are not a show that I can put on and then like work and do stuff and have it and be in the background. I end up having to watch it and get invested in these characters and the storyline and hoping for the best. The, o- the other thing about Asian dramas, which is both good and bad, is that they end. So in my head, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is only like 12 to 20 episodes. So I'll just watch it, all of it, <laughs> and then just go back to whatever it is I got to do, usually, which is not great. But I watched a shortish one. I think there's only 12 episodes on this one, maybe 16. I think it's 12. The K-drama called Something in the Rain. That was on Netflix. Again, I like my K- I like my Asian dramas. Like I like my anime and that they are lighthearted. Maybe a little romance is in there, but funny. 
that's usually how I like it. I don't usually watch the super serious ones. I very rarely watch the historical dramas because of all the deep emotions in those. So Something in the Rain kind of falls into that category of, of a serious drama. It's not a historical drama, but it is a drama based around basically this awakening of feelings between um, a brother's friend. Yeah, there we go. We've got a woman in her 30s, right? And she's got a brother who's like in his 20s, like early 20s, finishing school 20s. And he's got a best friend that she's known his entire life, right? But now she's seeing her brother's best friend in a different light. And the brother's best friend is definitely crushing hard on her. And it's about their relationship, like how they kind of go past being just the older sister or just the friend into a more romantic style or situation. It also shows the dynamic uh, within the Korean culture of the parents and their expectations for their kids. It's very interesting to see that like pretty much the brother is kind of left to his own devices. Like, yes, they want him to finish school. They want him to get a you know, sustainable career and they want him to get married above all else. They want him to get married, but they're not rushing him. But the sister, she's like on a ticking time clock. They're like, why aren't you married yet? You're already in your thirties. You're making us look insane. Like <laughs> they're just really harping on the fact that she has not settled down. Mind you, she has a great career. You know, she's doing a lot of great things for herself. She does still live at home, which is very cultural. You know, you typically you live with your parents until you're married. And then even after that, sometimes you still just live with your parents with with your married partner. So that is happening with her right now. She had a boyfriend. She caught that boyfriend cheating on her. She broke things off with that boyfriend. She didn't want to keep dealing with it, but her parents get involved and they try to bring that boyfriend back into play. They like him as an aspect for a son-in-law. He's from a good family. He's got a very good career, very lucrative career that he's in. And they're like, he would just be icing on the cake for us to boast about in regards to you being married. Also, you would be married. But she's like, I don't want to deal with all that. And she's falling in love with her brother's best friend. When that comes into fruition with the parents and everybody that's involved, the brother, the the brother's friend has a sister that she's best friends with. The, that friend's sister gets upset when she finds out they're together. Her family, the main character's family gets upset when she finds out they're together. Her brother, who is friends with the guy that she's in love with, gets upset. Like everybody's telling her it's a terrible plan. It's not going to work. The age difference is too much. The age difference is about 10-ish years, maybe 11 or 12-ish years. So they're like, you know, there's, you're not gonna have anything in common. He's not gonna be able to support you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody has their own idea of what would be best for these two people. And they don't want to ask the two people involved if they, what they actually want. They just think that they should do what they want them to do. And that's like a lot of the, a lot of the show. And it's also about that woman kind of figuring out, oh yeah, everybody's trying to pull and push me into doing things that they want me to do. I haven't really been doing the things that I want to do. I should start doing that. It is a tearjerker. You're gonna, your emotions are gonna be all over the place. That did happen. Um, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't watch it fully. So another thing with Asian dramas, especially the, the more emotional ones, uh, for me, that pacing tends to turn glacial. It gets real slow. Like it'll be 45, 50 minutes of a thought of like, well, I had this idea and then them just 
not really even exploring that idea, just like talking to everybody about that idea and getting everybody's feedback. And that's the episode. So I tend to watch it until it gets to its its mid-season climax where you find out what the actual point is, like them getting together or them solving world hunger. And then <laughs> I'll skip the next few episodes, like when the conflict starts, when they've told everybody or somebody's against it or there's a new love interest that's trying to fight something. I'll tend to skip it and then get back, jump back in towards the end when they're wrapping things up. When, okay, so we found out about the conflict. We dealt with it terribly. And now we got to figure out what the next step is. Even doing it that way, I feel like I didn't miss too much. And it still gave me the roller coaster when I jump back in. I jump back in on the last episode of it. And we find out, like, you know, they went through the highs and lows of being a couple. They broke things off due to the pressure of everybody, you know, kind of being in the relationship. And also them having second doubts because they've been listening to everybody have doubts about their relationship. And the culmination of the fact that they, both of them, have not gotten over each other. And they kind of are shaken by the fact they haven't gotten over each other by the time they this episode is happening it's been a year or so when everything went down and broke apart and they're trying to figure out what to do and they're finally having the talk that they should have had when they broke up about what it meant and if it was something they really wanted to do and then they're both crying and they both are having the feelings yeah 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 and i like that at the end the woman decides she needs a fresh break she quits her job a job that basically i mean while it was there for her and it gave her you know good stability and a a lot of uh, knowledge in in servicing and you know in customer service and working a cafe and whatnot it really wasn't helping her at all like to build her and, and help her grow as a person Also, things were getting dark over there. People were doing a lot of stuff behind her back or propping her to take a fall for things that she didn't do at all. So she gets out of that and she decides to start fresh with a friend. She goes to Jeju Island, which you hear about a lot in Korean dramas. Jeju Island's kind of like the vacation spot you go to. It's a beautiful beachy area, apparently. She decides to help run a cafe type S place with her friend and kind of clear her head and figure out what it is that she wants to do. And at the very end, very sweetly, the her brother's friend shows up because everything is still unfinished. Even though they had their full talk out and everything and they're like, you know, the love is always going to be there. But, you know, we just need to make sure that we're the right people if we're going to explore this. He comes to tell her, we are the right people to explore this. And they have their moment in the rain (laughs) the rain is a very big counterpart it's called something in the rain they get together when it starts raining and there's a tie-in with umbrellas it's very cutesy my problem not gonna say my problem but a small takeaway a small negative takeaway that i would say about the show is the music choice that they brought into it i'm used to watching a lot of asian dramas where they have like two songs that are dedicated to the couple and to like when chaos starts for the couple. It's like when the couple meets or they see each other and it's supposed to be like the love song, they have this one song that they play over and over again. Usually it's in that country's language. It's either in Korean or Mandarin or you name it, Thai. Usually, and I don't know what's being said. (laughs) Usually it's not subtitled when they're playing the song. So I can appreciate it for its melody and that's it. The music they chose for Something in the Rain is 
all in an English language. They chose Loretta Lynn's uh, Stand By Your Man to be the song from when the couples get together. And then they had another song by a artist named Yamada that was really beautiful, but it was more about how like, it's like an achy song of like, I loved you, but you're no longer here, but I can still feel you type of a song when they're, when they're having their trouble. And they would just play these two songs over and over again. The Yamada song made sense. The Stand By Your Man song didn't make sense to me. I felt like they heard it and they liked the tonal quality, but weren't, they didn't know what the meaning was about the song. In case you've never heard Stand By Your Man. Oh, I said Loretta, it's, I think it's Loretta Lynn. Now I gotta look it up because it might be saying the wrong person. But Stand By Your Man um, is honestly a very sad song. It's a, it's a very sad song in that it's about somebody who's in love with with a person who's not perfect, granted. Oh, Tammy Wynette, yep, someone's gonna get me. Tammy Wynette sang that song. Uh, it's, yes, it's about being in love with somebody who's not perfect, but if you read the lyrics of the song, it's about this person who's like cheating on you and doing horrible things, but if you love him, you're gonna hang on to him, basically, and just let him be crazy. Like, it's just, it's not a great message, but it works as a sad song, as like an angsty song, if you wanna take it in the direction of like, I can't help myself because I love this person so much, I'm gonna continue to stand by them and and hope for the best. Again, not the greatest message, <laughs> but I also think that's the point of the song. The point of the song is that everything's a mess. Everything's a mess. You're just gonna have to make the best decision you can in the moment that you're in. And if that's standing by your man, who am I to judge you for it, basically? But after explaining all of that to you, I still don't know how this song relates to our couple getting together. Still don't know how that works. It's it's not a situation where the guy was cheating on the woman or he was making decisions around her that were going to directly affect her in a negative way. Other than them breaking up, I don't know how this song relates, but it would play a lot, a lot, a lot. So, that, I mean, that's my one little side bit about not liking it, but otherwise it was fine. It was all good. And um, yep, that's gonna end the Curvy Geeky Fangirl podcast and all of my ramblings here. Uh, because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Yep, all of that stuff. So hopefully the next time I get back into recording, the shows will be back. I'm gonna have to look up these dates and see when they got back uh, and go from there. And hopefully it's really, really good. I'm trying to go watch Mr. Glass, which is supposed to be the third film in the Unbreakable trilogy from M. Night Shyamalan. The reviews are not kind um, about <laughs> about it. So great, great. Just when we were like, all right, M. Night, all right, M. Night, maybe, maybe you found the sauce again. Maybe you found the magic after Splinter because Splinter ended up being a really good movie. Apparently no, apparently no. It's just, it's, it's back to uh, depression and Depression is a hard word. Maybe just lackluster. Yeah, lackluster. We'll deal with that. A lackluster uh, film. I don't know how that breaks down or why it happens, but keeps happening to him a lot. So I'm not going to have high hopes and maybe not having high hopes going into the movie will mean that I will enjoy the movie because that's what happened with Justice League. Had no hope for Justice League. Had a great time. So we'll see. We'll see how that works. I'll try to break it down. Um, but like I said, that's going to be it for the Curvy Geeky Fangirl podcast. I hope you guys have a great week into this new year here, and I will talk to you later. Bye.